Three, two, one. Hello and welcome to Crux Investor, folks. Today we're going to talk about rare earths and, and particularly the rare earths industry in the US of A. And today we're joined by Mark Charmer, CEO of Energy Fuels, Konstantin Karyanopoulos, uh, President and CEO of NEO, and Jack Lifton, rare earths expert and commentator. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you all? Very good, Matt. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Hey, Jack, I'm going to start with you. I kind of want you to set the scene for uh, for us because Rare Earths has really sort of um, been under the spotlight for about the last year, 18 months or so, but not everyone's quite there yet. So what is the U.S. trying to do in the context of Rare Earths at the moment? What's the problem they're trying to solve? In the U.S., uh, the, the real buzzword, I think, uh, for Rare Earths today would be deglobalization. Uh, the U.S. official policy now is to uh, secure a supply of domestic rare earth. That doesn't mean just mining. That, that means the total supply chain. And, and for the key rare earth product, which is the rare earth permanent magnet. Now, uh, a great deal has been talked about and deglobalization is not exactly an easy uh, process in our world. And now on top of that, we've got the turmoil in Eastern Europe where not so many or so much of rare earths are produced and significant amounts are, are processed there. But the problem is the effect on, on global logistics, shipping things, paying for things. And right now, the, the rare earth domestic industry creation recreation in the United States is underway, but it, it's, it's impacted very much by the turmoil in Eastern Europe as that, as that impacts, as I said, global logistics. So um, you have today two gentlemen who are very much involved in North American earth industry. Uh, and I think that in my opinion, the, you have uh, today the leading uh, company uh, in in North America on on the reentry of the of the United States back into domestically produced rare earths as energy fuels, and I think that we need to let uh, Mr. Chalmers explain what he's doing. Uh, I'm very impressed by what he's been doing. Right, but let me before I let you go, Jack. I, I, I do I do want to talk about uh, again. It's, it's just setting the scene for people who perhaps are not um, as as. Uh, aware as to where this has all come from. China, well, so US did have mm. an industry. It then kind of faded away uh, uh, somewhat, and then China sort of took over. And it, and it seems to me that Rarus needed China somewhere in the food chain if it was going to work at all. The technical expertise and, quite frankly, the capital sometimes uh, needed uh, to, to, to do that. So it's, it's not just the US. It's also Europe trying to do the same thing, which is sort of stand on its own two feet. We're about to hear uh, from Energy Fuels and Neo as to you know their, their collaboration and what they can do in the U.S. But but globally, is this ex-China um, idea capable of being delivered? Look, uh, just start off, um, Matt. Um, look, look at the the demand for rare earths. You know, if you believe the forecast, is going to require everybody being able to 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 pitch in here to deliver. Um, uh, you know, sustainable outcomes for the demands for, for the rare earth products and everything. And, and uh, you know, and that includes China. So I think when people think about, you know, where are things going to come from, 
I think it's just really looking at some diversification. The, the relationship that all three of us have on this panel is that we're working together uh, to help solve those issues in, 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 a, in a responsible way and a creative way. So uh, when, when we announced we're getting to rare earths about two years ago, um, Constantine and I um, met up very soon after that and started working together to, to basically you know, build up integration in a creative way, taking infrastructure that we both had and, um, and including with Kimors and bolting it together to get there quicker, faster in a much uh, uh, more affordable and, and strike rate utilizing uh, the expertise from all groups. So, you know, I think from our perspective, uh, yeah, we, we're excited what we're doing at Energy Fuels, um, but I'm also very excited what we're doing with NEO and how we're working together and, and capitalizing on all the things we bring to the table, uh, you know, in a value-add way. Right. But, but that sounds the question, which was, you know, is that possible outside of China? Because it feels to me like if you, if you have China involved somewhere in that food chain, they have the ability to affect your margins, your ability to you know, be, be successful. So can I make one more point, uh, Tom? China's internal demand for rare earths is skyrocketing, going up dramatically. It's not a matter of can we do it in, in the West? It's a matter we must do it because China's primary concern is China, not Europe, not the United States. And China is now expanding its magnet production capacity dramatically. China is scouring the world for raw materials outside of China, rare earth raw materials. Uh, this, this is a contest now. China's not only the world's principal supplier, it's the world's principal rare earth predator these days. So if if we don't set ourselves up, we're going to be eaten. And can can we can we? Do, I say, Constantine, if I'm going to bring you in here, because I, I think most of our viewers and expanding uh, viewers know energy fuels and what they're trying to do and the opportunity they've been laying out here. Can you just give us a, a quick background on, on you and Neo, and perhaps then move on to the collaboration with energy fuels? Sure. Uh, Neo has been around for over thirty years. We have uh, three businesses three business units, one that produces rare earths, uh, refined, high value, very sophisticated materials uh, in two rare earth refineries in China and one in Estonia, which is the, the only commercial operation for rare earth production in, uh, in Europe. Um, we also, uh, our, our, our second division is called MagnaQuench, which is the original inventor of the rare earth magnet. Um, we have plants in China and Thailand, and we have a strategy to establish a magna production in Europe as well uh, for the supply of magnets to um, EVs uh, there, because, you know, outside of China, uh, Europe is growing very, very fast uh, in terms of its EV uh, production and, and, and demand. And, and our smallest uh, business is the rare metals business where we have a number of plants around the world in Estonia and elsewhere that produce primary as well as recycled rare metals such as tantalum, niobium, rhenium, hafnium, primarily for the aerospace and, and electronics industries. So we, we have a foot on, you know, all over the world, I guess, in both China and outside of China. And, and what I wanted to say is that um, I perhaps I'm not as much a believer in deglobalization. However, I would reframe the, the, the question in terms of 
the lessons that we learned through the pandemic, which is, you know, supply chains, as they stretch, uh, they become very weak. It's like a rubber band. The more you stretch it, the weaker it becomes, and it's more likely to break. And during the pandemic, these very long supply chains fell apart. So clearly now, any industrial economy that needs to ensure that it has a future that depends on critical materials and those supply chains associated with them needs to ensure, needs to come up with an industrial strategy, just like China did, just like Europe is doing, but all of these industrial economies who depend on the automotive industry and see their future tied to the electric vehicle, then they need to make sure that the supply chains that feed into these um, industries are robust and highly localized. And hence, we're having this discussion again about the supply chains returning to the United States. And you're absolutely correct that 30 years ago, um, the United States was one of the dominant um, uh, producers of rare earths and downstream uh, supply chain products. But also, Europe is now a very aggressively growing in, in areas that need um, all these critical materials, rare earths, rare metals, cobalt, lithium, etc., uh, in order to ensure its industrial future. So you've, you've got the technical expertise, um, you, you've demonstrated that, and been doing it a while. So not an overnight success, you've been at it a while. What was it that made you decide to take the phone call from Mark? I mean, what, what was on the table? What was the ambition? What did you see that said, well, actually, that's that could be interesting? Sure. Well, with the apologies for the esoteric discussion, as a chemical engineer, I, I, I can turn into a geek uh, or the geek factor uh, tends to be immense in the things that, that I like to talk about. So um, Mark and I talked about the possibility of quickly bringing on uh, industrial capacity for rare earth production in the United States and, and in Europe. Clearly, there are opportunities that um, we both had realized existed. And, and for a while, I always felt that uh, there was a, a potential source of rare earths that was not being utilized. And that was byproduct slash waste monazite. That was um, the byproduct of, uh, of mining of other heavy minerals. And you know, historically, monazite was one of the main sources uh, of raw materials into the rare earth industry uh, up until the, the mid-90s when um, um, the, the European production in France had to stop because of its inability to deal with um, waste that contained uh, elevated um, uh, radioactivity counts. So it, it, the monazite from a rare earth point of view is a fantastic raw material. It has all the elements that you want in a raw material. On the other hand, it does have impurities that could be very challenging for folks who don't know how to deal with it. And that's uranium and thorium. And there is a large uh, output of monazite byproduct in the United States that was being stockpiled, just like there is in, in Australia, South Africa, et cetera. And, and I always felt that if you could deal with the radioactivity in the monazite, then you could, you know, monazites could become an absolute game changer. So. Um, when Mark called, um, I thought, well, this is it. This is the game changer. This is the missing link. Energy fuels ability to deal with the uranium and the thorium because, you know, they, that's what they do for a living. 
uh, and they have the capabilities and the permits and the, all the, the sophisticated uh, industrial capacity to deal with it. Uh, and then if they can do that, then that leaves the rare earths as, a, as it is yet it, with the ability to enter back into supply chains as a, as a strong uh, material. Um, and, and that's what we talked about. And the financial, I guess, attractiveness of this is that Mark was, you know, first of all, we were starting with a byproduct. Effectively, what it means, it's a zero mining cost. So we don't need to dig more mines uh, around. Second, Mark had the capacity, available capacity in Utah at, um, at, at the plant in White Mesa to do all of this thing because it's, it's still um, a, a very small portion of, of, of White Mesa's industrial capacity. And then in, in our plant in Estonia, we had, you know, we were running at about 75, 80% capacity because our, our suppliers weren't able to meet all of our needs. Uh, so immediately we had a gap in uh, available capacity, both at Energy Fuels and at Neil in Estonia. And we put this very quickly together at, a, at a, almost a trivial uh, expense. And it's working out really well. So I think it's a, it's a brilliant example. In, in my 30 years, it's probably the most capital efficient project that I have seen here. And clearly it sets a stage for doing things in a, in a much bigger scale with, of course, given Mark's um, vision and, uh, and the industrial capabilities of White Mesa. Right. And Mark, I'm going to come to, come to you at this point. But you, you obviously um, initiated that conversation. Oh, things are moving quite quickly. I think you're getting rewarded for that in, in, in the market. Are you getting noticed at government level? Because again, we've had conversations in the past about the Section 232 initiatives you've done for uranium and governments move at a certain pace. Has the recent geopolitical situation with Russia um, expedited a conversations? Um, were they already happening? Do you need a government to get involved here? Or do you think there's a good commercial imperative anyway that allows it to stand on its own two feet? Well, we, we're, we are having discussions with the government on both the uranium space and, and the rare earth space. And um, and we've done a few small projects where we've, we've been funded by the, the DOE. Uh, and so that's been good. I think we're, we're, we're behind some of the other players who have been in the business for uh, you know, like Linus and MP uh, have been in the business for you know a number of years, so they were kind of ahead of the line for uh, in front of us. Uh, but but I think the key thing is is we're focusing on what we can do without subsidies. You know, we're not looking to the government to 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 prop us up to pay capital. Now, sure, if if we do get some subsidies because we are making these advancements, and and we're definitely on the radar screen. But I think there are others that got in in front of us and they've gotten awards that we haven't got. Uh, but they're, they're really, um, you know, they're, they're not so material in the long you know, term scheme of things. You know, I think you've got to have the ability uh, to be commercial, uh, to be profitable uh, on your own merits. You know, when you have to look out to the government for subsidies, I think you're, you're getting into trouble. And, uh, and our view is, that if, if we can receive subsidies, we'll, we'll consider them and, and you know, potentially take them. But we are focused on getting there on our own, based on the merits, based on the market, and, uh, and, and working with people like NEO 
to show that that we can actually do integration by being creative. Right. So what's the extent of the opportunity? You've, you've been in a couple of years. You've, you've had a look around. Do you have a sense of what the size of the prize is uh, in the U.S.? You know, and how you go about capturing some of that and how far down that uh, that um, supply chain you go in terms of the product that you're putting into market. Yeah. Well, right now, our limitation is is securing monazite. Um, we're talking to people all over the world um, and we can scale up like immediately. If I have monazite at the mill, we can scale it up and we can make a rare earth carbonate. And I would like to fill Constantine's boots with as much carbonate that we can produce. And we can do it right now. I was at the mill on, on Monday and, and it, it, it blows my mind at how creative our team has been at, 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 at moving forward. Now, when you start looking at, uh, you know, the securing of the monocyte, the crack, the leach uh, into separations, we do plan to go into separations, but at the same time, here we have uh, the Silmet plant, needs material. Uh, and, and so we plan to have a, a, a at the very limited, a, a bridge of carbonate production uh, in the, the shorter medium term, but that could also go for, for you know, as, as, as far as we can see. So, um, you know, I think that the world needs um, companies like Neo and ourselves that are actual doers. And, uh, but you really have to do some of the value chain additions as you go. I mean, if you're, if you're just producing monazite, if you're just cracking and leaching, if you're just doing separations, it, it, it's, it's quite limiting, I believe. That doesn't mean it doesn't make financial sense, but we're, we're looking for uh, full integration in the United States, but also uh, working very closely in Europe um, with Constantine uh, as we go forward. Jack, I've got one for you. Um, when, when I've worked in the rare space, or certainly from the banking side, looked at rare earth before, it's, it's been fairly erratic. What's your view of this space now, the, as the EV component just changed, this is are the prices more sustainable uh, going forward? The uh, rarities were an early uh, bellwether of the current commodity turmoil. In the last year, I think uh, prices have tripled on the magnet rarities. So that uh, this is not a good thing. It might be a good thing for bankers and and traders but not for manufacturers who have to budget years in advance for devices that use rare earth enabled products. And if they can't understand the price, how, how can they plan anything? So in fact, uh, the latest round of increases, and, and this is more Constantine's specialty, seems to have come out of China, certainly not out of the West. So um, the Chinese are increasing prices and it doesn't make a lot of sense from our point of view, but I think it does from theirs. I believe uh, uh, Chinese companies are, are facing the problem of not making profits downstream in the rare earth industry. So they, they, needed, they needed to get those prices up. Now, what I'm saying is in the processing industry. And, and so by raising the selling price of the, of the basic materials, uh, that certainly has helped out Chinese companies, which were not doing very well. And, and quite frankly, it has set off a chain of events that the end of which I don't see yet in the West, because I don't think that the very few rare earth permanent magnet companies we have outside of China are making any money these days, because depending on their contracts, uh, what are they paying for materials? And since 
The largest customer in the world for rare earth permanent magnets is the global OEM automotive industry, which is famous for fixed term contracts. They, they like the life of the vehicle. That could be three years, even six years. And they don't want to hear about, oh, I can't supply you the magnet uh, motor at that price because the price went up. They say, that's your problem. And they do say that. So that I believe that is a huge problem. And by the way, I just wanted to make a comment. The U.S. market for earth permanent magnets, almost all of which would be today automotive and aerospace, is between 12 and 15,000 tons a year of neodymium iron boron. And I believe the production of those magnets in North America today is probably one to 200 tons, if that. Yeah. So that, so that we, we have a long road to hold here. So I, I'm, I'm, does that mean there's an opportunity for more entrance or are there just too many barriers to entry in terms of competition for this illustrious couple we see in front of us? The, the problem here in North America is processing. We, we've got deposits and we've got access to deposits in friendly countries. What do we do with the stuff? We don't have any processing capacity here and I'm not sure we have the capability anymore. We haven't done this for 20 years. The problem is processing. That's it. Uh, it and it's called, it's price. If I, if I can make a rare permanent magnet in Indiana today, the same as we did 40 years ago, but it's going to cost me 10 times as much. And, and my customers in the uh, automotive and aerospace industry can say, wait a minute, I can get that for half that price in China. Okay. So now the U.S. government and Constantine made, made a very important point. Our competitors, China, Europe, they have industrial policies. Their national governments plan what industries to support and what has to be done. In the United States, we have no policy. We say, well, we, we got to do this, but, but then something else comes up and that's lost. Until the United States adopts an industrial policy, I don't see anybody hitching their wagon to the government's star because these folks, they change their, their minds probably more often than they change their underwear. Constantine, does that mean there's an opportunity? Absolutely, there's an opportunity. And, and as I've said at conferences that I've spoken, I, we need a very much bigger boat. Um, it, the, the opportunity is immense, but also the need is immense. If uh, our automotive industry, which is one of the essential pillars of any modern um, industrial economy is going to have a future, you know, whether we like it or not, EVs are the future of the automotive industry and um, the degree of penetration has been much faster and higher than what planners and, um, and, and, and analysts have predicted. But clearly, if we're going to use EVs as, the, as, as, as a pillar of the next new industrial state, we need to ensure these supply chains. The opportunity is massive. There's no question about it. So there's room for all kinds of additional mining, all kinds of additional processing, all kinds of additional value added, and as well, um, all kinds of recycling. There isn't a magic bullet. You need all of those to come together. Um, so, and, and we will need to, to, 
to, to mine more responsibly. ESG is going to be uh, a much bigger factor in, in everything we do, because unless we do, we do it sustainably, you know, there is no future. So with, with that in mind, I think they, I, I do think that there is room for an awful lot of uh, players in this, given the size of the demand. And, I'm, you know, all you have to do is just look at what happened in lithium and batteries, where, you know, we were facing a permanent deficit uh, over the next five, six years, simply because we haven't expanded production fast enough, given, you know, low prices, et cetera. But staying with rare earths, there is a lot of room for a lot of players to enter the supply chain from the mining all the way to the finished magnet. So I don't, I don't see this as, as, a, as a zero sum game. There's a lot for a lot of folks. On the pricing, you know, we have to keep in mind that China is not only the largest producer, which is what we normally hear. The, the reason China is the largest producer is because China is the largest consumer. So the two go hand in hand as, as uh, Jack was pointing out. And I think at this stage, um, it, it be, given the fact that in China, the industry is very heavily regulated, I think the, the, the planners, first of all, they're very well educated and they have very long memories. They learn from history, which sometimes outside of China, we, we don't do as well. But, you know, they remember what happened in 2011 when rare earth spi uh, prices spiked. And then a year later, they had crashed to levels that, you know, made a lot of the projects unsustainable. So they want to make sure that that is avoided. They want to see more production because everybody needs more production, but also they need to see high prices because at, for example, today's prices, everybody makes money. The miners make money, the midstream processors make money, the magnet producers make money, and the final customers, you know, they can live with it and they're reasonably happy. So, and, and more importantly for, for the Chinese regulators, when miners make money, that means they can deploy capital in environmental protection systems that, you know, in the past were not always looked after. So we, we are in, in a pretty good situation and there is a little bit of room to move higher or lower from here, but I don't see long-term prices moving massively outside the current range. And, and at the current range, Energy Fuels is making money, doing what, what they're doing with Monazite. We're making money. We're running our, all of our plants as, as, far, as, as, as fast and as hard as we can. So, you know, we're, we're pretty bullish about the future. And I think given uh, Energy Fuels' first mover advantage, because they have been the first uh, in, in North America in, in the last five, 10 years to produce uh, um, uh, rare earth carbon mix, rare earth carbonates. Um, I think they have a clear advantage onto uh, on, on, on a lot of other folks that are trying to do the same thing. So I think we, you know, I'm, we're very happy with the partnership. Uh, uh, Mark and I get along. Our, our folks get along. We're at each other's plants all the time, and you know, we really like the way this thing is unfolding. And to us, this is um, a, a very key relationship if we're going to be able to to implement the strategy that we have to continue to expand rare earth production, continue to, to expand magnet, magnetic materials production, both in, in Asia where we already are, but 
perhaps uh, in the near future in the United States and uh, in Europe. I hope you're right with regards to the sustainability or at least operating within that range. It gives a kind of certainty and forecasting, as Jack points out, which can, which can be troublesome um, if, you, if you're trying to uh, plan ahead on the, with your supply chain. Mark, um, Constantine used a phrase there, which, which, which was literally where I was going, which was our first mover advantage. You guys have got that at the moment. What? T- tell me your thoughts on how you maintain and sustain that, because there will be barriers to entry, but there will also be competition, because there will be money around. It's the technology, the plant, the know-how that perhaps kind of staves off that unwanted attention for a while. Oh, look, we, um, you know, we want to maintain that first mover advantage, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the fact that, the, that we have the plant, we have the permits, we're doing it now, uh, we're learning a lot. Uh, you know, we do have people going to, to Estonia and we got people from NEO coming to our plant. So, uh, you know, we've got the best minds available to continue that first mover advantage. Uh, you know, we are, uh, we've done some pl- pl- preliminary scoping uh, with Carister's out of France uh, on the next step, which is the separation step. Uh, we're, we're planning to do uh, um, a lot more with Carister uh, as we go forward. And, uh, and again, we, we plan to give uh, those that are producing monazite an alternative to China. You know, maybe they decide, well, we're shipping some to China, we'll ship some to the United States. So, you know, our, our goal is uh, really go forward aggressively, but not recklessly, um, put the bricks together in the wall and show people the wall is getting bigger. And as Constantine says, we need a bigger boat, and that bigger boat uh, needs to cover off and, and, and provide diversification in the world and people knowing that there are these other options out there that we can all you know, uh, benefit from as far as companies go. But we're, and we're not really uh, you know, trying to measure ourselves with others. We're trying to, to run our own game. We're trying to drive our own bus. And uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, the, the people and the expertise we've pulled together collectively. Uh, I'm very proud of that. I think it's, I think it's clever and I think it's productive. And, uh, you know, just kind of watch this space. Once we get the molecules in the front, it will all fit together and people will understand that we can scale up very quickly. Well, I think it wasn't so long ago where I was telling people that you'd be a billion dollar company. You're at 1.5 billion US. Uh, long may that continue. Uh, congratulations, gentlemen. Lovely to meet you all. Lovely to meet you, uh, Constantine and Jack. Would love to see more of you uh, as well with your with your commentary in the, uh, about the marketplace. So, gentlemen, thank you for your time today. Yeah, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, Matt.